My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, I'm super excited to have as a guest, literally a legend from the FBI, Gary Nessner, who wrote Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator. How are you doing today, Gary? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to be with you, too. Now, one thing I'm interested in, too, is I've had different uh, negotiators on, uh, Dr. Andy Young, Chris Voss, um, Derek Gaunt, and I'm wondering if all negotiation is, in fact, hostage-oriented, or is it sometimes just crisis-oriented? Well, it's it's really the latter. Um, when we formed a, a standalone unit after Waco, we'd had a, a negotiation program for many years in the FBI, but when we created a standalone expanded unit in which I was the chief, I decided to name it the Crisis Negotiation Unit to reflect that we did far more than hostage negotiations. And in fact, if you look at the statistics, only about 10% of what law enforcement negotiators do are technically hostage situations. Um, those are, you know, uh, noted by uh, a person holding someone against their will in order to get somebody else to do something, uh, to compel them, uh, you know, to come through on a, on a demand. And those, believe it or not, are amongst the easiest to deal with because the person is there essentially to get their demands met, not to kill or to die. Mm. I'm not suggesting they they aren't dangerous, but if you understand the motivation of why someone takes a hostage, it, it makes sense that you have greater leverage as a negotiator to at least address uh, what it is that they're demanding. Ninety percent of what police do, however, uh, including FBI, are more emotionally driven situations where the individual is acting out um, through frustration, rage, anger, confusion, and are often engaged in activity for which they have no clear goal. Mm. And um, they don't always know what they want. And uh, so those are uh, those require rather more uh, crisis intervention skills. So that's why I always prefer to call myself crisis negotiator. But you notice even in my book, the subtitle is hostage negotiations, sure. because that's kind of what the public uh, identifies with as as what we do. And that's how it all started. Okay, makes sense. And I've, you know, speaking to Gaunt and Voss and stuff, would you agree that hostage situations are usually at the end of a very bad day or something goes wrong that people don't usually go out to say, I'm going to go capture some hostages today. Usually it's whatever they're doing kind of goes sideways or something weird happens and now they're cornered. Well, there's a mix. I mean, there are people that purposely engage in hostage taking to, um, to get the attention of the authorities to press for a demand. But as you suggest, many of them are robberies gone bad, a, a bank robbery, a jewelry store, and police are called to the scene and um, surround the building and open up a negotiation. In those, you could surmise that the bank robber uh, did not come in today to take hostages. Their aim was to make a, a withdrawal, <laughs> unauthorized as it were, mm-hmm. and go about their life. But once trapped in the bank or the jewelry store, whatever it might be, now they they hold hostages for two essential reasons. One is to keep the police at bay. And they would say, for example, if you try to come in here, I'll kill the hostages. Mm-hmm. 
And the, the other purpose of the hostage is to, to press for a demand. I, I want money. I want a getaway car. I want whatever it is they want. So those are very um, instrumental behaviors. There, there's a purpose. There's a, a goal in mind. And um, frankly, the outcome of those is extremely uh, positive in most cases. It's pretty rare for someone to be killed in a hostage situation. Most police even believe that hostage situations are more lethal, but statistically they're not. Um, on the other hand, the emotionally driven barricade, suicide, uh, emotional situations are the most routine and the most routinely solved. However, when things do go bad, it is typically in that spectrum because people are often holding someone they know. They have a, a bad history with mm. a grievance. It's a girlfriend that's threatened to leave them. It's a it's an employer that's just fired them. So in those cases, because of that personal history and the animosity, the victim, as we call it in those cases, is actually in greater danger than the random customer in the bank that now has become a hostage. In other words, the hostage taker at the bank, you know, didn't come in there because they're mad at Eric Hunley. You know, they came in there to get money. So right. that's that's uh, you know uh, the things that we we assess when we respond to a situation and open up a dialogue. Can we talk about perceptions? Because I thought that was interesting how you said that even the police officers, et cetera, perceive that the hostage situations are more dire than they often turn out. Is it possible that that, that perception may be helpful in the, in the way of forcing them to pay attention and take everything very seriously? I, I don't know if I would characterize it as helpful. I mean, if it's a very experienced negotiation team, it, it may be helpful for them to know that. I mean, I, I, many times I would assist in a situation and they would say, oh, my God, this is a hostage situation. And I would say, well, that's good news. I mean, we have uh, something to work with here. Mm. Um, you know, it's far more likely if a guy's in there with his girlfriend and they're they have a long history of troubled domestic relations and again, because of the romantic connection, um, those are amongst the most dangerous. And and the typical demand from a person like that will be, go away and leave us alone. Right. And that is typically the one thing we can't do. So then another way to look at it, if they don't want or need anything from us, it really uh, reduces the leverage we can apply uh, to get them to, to cooperate. Um, because they're acting out of desperation. And again, as I mentioned earlier, and it's very important to remember, in many of these instances, they really don't have a clear goal. They, they're not really sure how to get out of what they got into. They're not even sure what they want. So our first task really is to um, you know, listen to what's going on in their world and what prompted this event and um, to lower their emotional levels to the point where they begin to think a little bit more clearly and hopefully come to realize that, you know, the best alternative, the best outcome for them is that no one gets killed and they comply and, and surrender peacefully. Was that the case with the Freemans as well, that they really didn't necessarily need anything from you specifically? They, they had game in the freezers, I believe you wrote, and pretty much were self-sufficient and they, their main focus was everybody leave us alone. Yeah, I mean, that was three years after Waco. And be, because of the tragedy of Waco, it had to be handled very delicately by us. And that's a case where of the 
several dozen people in those uh, adjacent farms that were under their control, there were no hostages. No one was being held against their will. So, you know, their basic position was, we don't believe in the U.S. government. We don't believe your control over us. We don't agree with the charges against us for theft and threatening activity and so forth and so on. So go away and leave us alone. And, um, you know, that's kind of the view that they had. So, again, because they were out in this rural area, they 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 hunted and they had fish and uh, pretty self-sustaining in a lot of ways. And where typically, say, in a bank robbery, after an extended period of time, people get hungry and they have needs and um, it's hard to manage hostages and you have to go to the bathroom and you have to get food and you need sleep and all that sort of thing. With with the Freeman, they were pretty confident that we would not come storming in. And part of that confidence was because they knew, just like the public and just like we did, that we, the FBI, couldn't afford another Waco outcome. Mm-hmm. So it really put us, in a sense, a disadvantage. They didn't need anything from us. They wanted us to go away. We couldn't do it. We weren't really in a position to give them something critical that they needed because they didn't want anything. So, you know, it made an extreme challenge to get uh, to the point where they would sit down with us and talk about the issues that were important to them. And we eventually came up with a solution that they agreed to. It seemed like a really interesting approach. And and maybe I'm wrong, but over time, you seem to almost isolate them from others who would agree in their philosophy. Kind of like everybody sort of got sick of them. And as they lost the support from outside and other groups, they seemed to be more open to talk. Or did I misinterpret that from that book? No, I think that's correct. Um, you, you know, they were not very well liked in that part of Montana. They had created a lot of problems for local government and local law enforcement. They took over city council meeting, you know, with weapons and they, you know, were engaged in a whole range of mischief and um, some of it quite serious. And yeah, so we, we had to sort of, uh, you know, create an opportunity where we could let them articulate their views about common law and their lack of, uh, you know, uh, fealty to the U.S. government. And, you know, ultimately through, through time, I think they came to realize that they were left with two basic options. You either ultimately cooperate with the government and comply or run the risk of serious injury or death by resisting. And we were fortunate in that case that that lasted 85 days, by the way, we were fortunate in that we were not under the threat that they were going to execute or kill somebody, uh, which is always a powerful incentive for us to, to resolve a situation sooner than later. So we took our time. We were patient. We listened. We, in that instance, uh, for the first half of the 85 days, had to almost exclusively communicate through intermediaries because they felt as though if they spoke directly with us, that would, in essence, be um, an acknowledgement of the U.S. government's authority. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, we we were able to convince them through some maneuvers and some psychological things we did that perhaps they shouldn't feel as secure inside as as they thought and that we were uh, getting a bit frustrated and getting ready to take some action. In fact, we were not. Um, we had no intention of, of violently arresting them, um, but creating that sense that they were in jeopardy served as an incentive for them to come to the table. 
you know, it's 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 a little bit akin to the good cop, bad cop kind of thing. You know, talk to the nice negotiator, deal with the the SWAT team that may, may not be as amenable to your point of view. So, you know, there's a lot of those kind of dynamics going on. But a, as we've learned through the years and particularly in the complex situations that I was involved in, we have to be very patient. We have to be creative and we have to uh, genuinely express a desire to understand their position to give them an opportunity. When people misbehave in ways like that, they're basically saying, we want to be heard. We want to be respected. We want to be listened to. And that, as I've always taught, is a pretty cheap concession for us to make. Um, you know, there's there's some in law enforcement that get frustrated and feel because we have, you know, authority and badges and guns that we don't like it when people don't do what we tell them. And it becomes frustrating. So it takes a great deal of not only self-control on the part of the negotiators, but organizational control that we invest the time and energy into doing it the right way. And in Montana, I remember Louis Fried, the director of the FBI, is on a phone call with the leadership team out there, including me. And he says, Gary, I want you to understand we're in, I'm in no rush for this to end. I want it to end the right way. And that was a pretty strong, compelling, uh, uh, you know, uh, endorsement of the approach we were taking. And even those within our organization who would have considered a, a, a you know, a, a more, uh, tactical response, we're sort of told to step back and let this uh, evolve the way it should have, as it should have in Waco. That's interesting. And um, that made me think of uh, a mutual person we both know, uh, J. Paul Nadeau. And when I was interviewing, he talked about how an interrogation, and I think that some of negotiation interrogation, maybe there's overlap, I could be wrong. But he was saying that Often, that's the only time these people have ever been heard. Have you noticed? Have you had that yourself? Well, I mean, there is a distinction. Interrogation is is really aimed at getting a confession and and you know, um, compelling the person to provide the information you want. An interview is is a little more subtle, a, a little more empathic. Um, you know, we weren't trying to build a case against the Freeman. We had a pretty solid case for which we, we were confident we could take them to court and obtain prosecutions, which ultimately did happen. But there was no harm, no downside to listening to their views, even though we didn't agree with them or endorse them. But yeah, I think in a whole wide range of tense situations where people are in a confrontation, um, one of the prime factors you have to keep in mind is they do want to be heard. And many of these people feel they've been misunderstood and underappreciated, and they have a point of view that's valid. Now, with the Freeman, they had some pretty quirky ideas about common law and being able to place liens against people and get money from that. And they even ripped off the IRS for a sizable amount of money. And, uh, you know, we had to slowly educate them that, you know, if they were confident in their perspective, then the best way to handle this would be in a court and to have their day in court to articulate their views and, you know, let the let the justice system decide uh, best, but to, you know, engage in violence against us um, was, was certainly not a pathway to success. Yeah, definitely fruitless. And you had mentioned a little bit of a kind of uh, the threat of potential force versus you weren't necessarily planning to, but you can't just let people think, oh, don't worry, we're here, we're watching, you know, go chill out. You express that even more with the uh, Republic of Texas, right? Yeah, what, what happened... Um, 
I, I'd flown down to Fort Davis, Texas, um, some months prior to the incident to help the local law enforcement do an assessment of um, that potential standoff because uh, it had been brewing for a while. And then I was speaking at a conference in Portland and um, there had been an altercation and the, the Republic of Texas folks who had this quasi compound in uh, the Fort Davis area um, ended up kidnapping uh, a family and, and holding them hostage in order to try to get one of their comrades released from jail. He'd been arrested earlier that day. And, um, you know, they ultimately, the Texas Rangers, before I got there, in essence, let the one fell out of jail in exchange for the couple being freed. That's typically something you don't do in these situations, but it was a good call and it made sense. So now we had no hostages and we were able to negotiate. But again, Richard McLaren was uh, a pretty interesting character, um, very strong willed, very hyper uh, wound up guy who felt very passionately about his, again, his view that Texas had never been properly annexed into the United States and therefore the government had no authority over him. Now, one of the things we played there was, you know, the federal government's just just here to assist. It was a, a state operation. And the Texas Rangers, are, you know, pretty decisive organization and uh, great, great folks. And they they talked with McLaren for a while, but they began to lose patience and said, well, we're, we're going to show him who's in charge. And, you know, and I had an opportunity to talk to the on-scene commander and suggest that, you know, let's let's try to do some things that uh, encourage them to come to the negotiation table. And ultimately that's what we did. And, and we secured a peaceful surrender in your, in the book. And maybe I re, I'm reading into the tone a little bit, but I did listen to it with audible. He seemed to almost get on your nerves a little bit. There, there is something about the writing that like, I don't know if he rubbed you the wrong way or just the, the way he talked, you mentioned like a strident um, pattern, different things. I, I think Richard McLaren, rubbed almost everybody the wrong way. He had even been kicked out of the mainstream part of the Republic of Texas and sort of ran his own little small offshoot. He, he was a very uh, highly strong, you know, shotgun, rapid fire uh, guy that was full of uh, kind of nonsensical beliefs and but couldn't stop from from reciting them repeatedly and in a very excited way. So he, he was a challenge to deal with in that regard. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I think his fear of what might happen to him, you know, compelled him to uh, engage more seriously in, in, in the opportunities we were offering for a peaceful outcome. That was leading into my next question. How do you cope with that? Because, I mean, nobody is perfect. You know, we all try to be open and patient, everything else. But some people, they might remind us of a bully that we had when we were 10 years old, or there's just something about them that rubs you the wrong way, or you have a real tough time. How do you cope with it? You just turn it right over to another negotiator, or do you have some tools or tactics you can suggest? Well, typically, a, a good negotiator can avoid that um overreaction to an unlikable character. You don't have to, uh, you know, have, have a positive uh, view of someone in order to negotiate with them. Uh, and McLaren I, w was clearly that way. But, you know, our mission as negotiators, and again, I'm advising the Rangers and what to say and when to say it and how to say it. 
our, our goal was, um, you know, basically to get him to think a little bit more broadly. And we didn't want to have to resort to a tense uh, tactical intervention that could seriously lead to police officers being harmed or injured. I mean, our primary goal is that all our people come home safe and sound. And if we can get all of them to surrender and, you know, face whatever uh, judicial action was was levied against them, all the better. But the bottom line is, you know, to exercise our self-control, both individually as negotiators, but organizationally. Uh, we used to have a saying in negotiations, don't get even, get your way. You know, so you have to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we. what's our goal here? Is our goal to vent our spleen and, you know, show this person who's in charge? Or is our goal to resolve it peacefully? So I think the very first thing I always taught in negotiation courses was self-control. If you can't control your own emotions, how do you expect to be able to control somebody else or influence someone else? I have a question and I've just never heard it talked about before. Have you ever dealt with any female abductors or hostage takers or crisis situations? We we have, but it's very, very rare. I mean, this is a testosterone-driven activity for the most part. You Typically, police would deal with women more on the suicide range of, of, of situations, which, by the way, are perhaps the most common. I mean, police are often responding to depressed uh, People who are, uh, you know, at wit's end, they've had, you know, the, the double whammy. They don't have a family support structure. They don't have a, a solid employment support structure. And so they haven't really developed in their lives uh, good coping skills for dealing with, you know, a range of life problems. So they act out and we're brought in to try to resolve the situation. In many instances, it's to stop them from harming themselves. And, uh, you know, it's tough. You're not successful all the time. I, I always tell negotiators, if you respond and negotiate in, in enough suicide situations, you, you will have some that will kill themselves. And it's not because of any failure on your part or something you said that caused them to do it. In fact, one can argue that you can't make somebody do what they don't want to do. I can't say to you, Eric, you know, you've got a miserable life. You should kill yourself and, and have you do it. It just doesn't work that way. So, you know, we have to be very patient in those cases. We try to find a hook. We try to find something that we call it a hook that um, makes them want to live. Maybe it's a, a family member, a grandchild, or, you know, we'll cite, cite statistics about how many children commit suicide after their parents have committed suicide and, mm. you know, and how suicide is a a permanent solution to a temporary problem, you know, and we, we try to get them think a little bit more expansively when you're suicidal, you have tunnel vision, you know, and this is the only way I can resolve this pain I'm feeling and this hurt I'm experiencing. And sometimes that's a, a homicide followed by a suicide. If it's particularly in that right. romantic range that I mentioned earlier. So I, I just think when you have a negotiation team, you have three, four five, whatever it is, negotiators, using their collective skills and abilities and assessment processes, we we stand a good chance of understanding what's motivating this person and addressing that in a meaningful way so they come to realize there, there are alternatives. They can get help. Life can go on. You know, and we don't say, hey, someday life will be better. We say, we're going to get you help right now. We're going to get you to a mental facility so people can deal with this terrible situation you're dealing with. And, it, and it's it's, you know, it's very challenging for you and we appreciate that. And we're not here to make your life worse. We're here to help you. And that's something that often they don't expect to hear from the police. And when we 
engage in that manner, it makes us more genuine and and people want to deal with people they like and respect and who who in turn you know respect them and are genuine. So I think when we have that that calm empathic voice, you know, we position ourselves best to to be a positive influence. Is it? I don't know if it would be fair to say easier. But if if you're dealing with somebody who's suicidal and there's nobody else at risk, is it in some ways more comfortable that stall for the time, just relax? They're not going to harm anybody else. Just keep working with them, working with them, working with them to where you can maybe get a, a good feeling about the overall outcome. Because they may not have done any other crime or anything else. They're just having a really bad moment. Quite often they haven't engaged in any other criminal activity. You know, they're... Years ago, back in the 70s, there were some departments that would get frustrated. We have a lot of call outs and there's another person threatening to kill themselves. Well, you know, do it or don't do it. You know, we've got other things to do. Of course, I think that's unethical. And we certainly have always preached that you do everything you can to try to save a life. And if ultimately you don't succeed, it was their decision, not yours. And Mm -hmm. surprisingly, Eric, that is uh, those are the situations rather that negotiators are the most psychologically impacted on. You know, when some battle bank robber kills a hostage, as rare as it might be, we know who to blame. But Mm -hmm. when some, you know, 18-year-old girl jumps off an overpass because she didn't get a date for the prom, you know, we begin to question ourselves, what should I have said? What could I have said? Why wasn't I more effective in, you know, in stopping this senseless and unnecessary uh, death? And and it can weigh quite hard on on negotiators when that happens. And I, I've seen it affect negotiators, uh, suicides, that is, more than any other uh, incident they respond to. My next question would be, how are you taking care of the negotiators? Do they have any kind of counseling opportunities, any kind of help? Because I would think, you know, they're potentially victims, too, of this scenario. There's no question. And, um, you know, it, it varies from department to department. There, there, you know, there's no... The FBI certainly taught a uh, procedure and process for what we should do for negotiations, but we don't and could not compel that police departments adopt those uh, those ideas and those uh, principles. But um, increasingly, you know, through the years, departments realize that in, in these and other tense situations, uh, police officers are human beings. They have feelings. They can benefit from post-incident uh you know, care and attention and counseling, and it should not be seen as a as a negative or a flaw in the individual. Um, you know, these are hard situations when somebody kills themselves in front of you. You know, it's 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 not an easy thing to deal with, and and there can be a sense of failure that is probably um, inappropriate, but you feel it nonetheless. And uh, you know, I remember uh, years ago I taught a, a negotiation course in Anchorage, Alaska, and. Uh, in the middle of the three-day course, a, a whole troop of state troopers got called out to an incident. And they came back the next day and they said, you know, there was this 40-something-year-old lady out in a rural area. And she was on the front porch with her former husband's gun. He had abandoned her for a younger woman. She had no family. And she was going to kill herself. She was going to shoot herself. They said, and we used active listening skills that you taught us. And we we're empathic and we listened to her and she put her gun down and, and you know what? She's a wonderful lady. And they felt so wow. good about it and so positive. She's not some terrible criminal on, on a rampage. Sure. I mean, she's just a a good person dealing with some enormous emotional and, and problems that are very real. And, 
so when police officers are able to uh, forestall that kind of uh, self-destructive behavior, I mean, they feel really good about that. And you stop to think about it. There's not many things in life, many jobs where you can have that kind of very uh, solid impact and, and feel good about it. I mean, I, I suppose if you're a lifeguard and you're pulling people out of the water every day, it might oh, be. Yeah. yeah, my my son was a lifeguard when uh, he was in college and at a state park, uh, uh, you know, at a beach, and he saved about five kids one summer, you know, and I was so proud of him. And um, and I know he felt good about that. He went on to become a Navy SEAL, so I guess the water thing worked out okay for him. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we all want to, you know, people are generally attracted to the negotiation specialty because they're empathic. They care about people. They're, they're, they're genuine. You know, you can fake anything, I suppose, in life, but the really good negotiators are those who truly care, you know, and when you're talking to somebody in crisis and you say, I, I want to help you. I don't want to see you hurt yourself. I mean, it's sincere and genuine. They mean it. And so they invest a lot of themselves. And that maybe speaks a little bit to why they take it so hard when they don't come out the way we want them to, which is still rare, but it happens. Is there a bit of um, there but the grace of God go I quality sometimes? Like, I mean, we've all had devastating things happen, you know, loss or relationships or, or things like that. So I, I imagine, you know, sometimes you can flat out relate. You're like, oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, I've always taught don't make something up. But I mean, if the guy's thinking to kill himself because his his child died from cancer and, you know, you had a similar experience in your family, it's okay to disclose that and share it. So, man, I, I know what you're feeling. I went through it myself. That's powerful. Um, you know, it, you obviously don't make it up and, and invent a story that's not true because that tends to backfire on you. But if you really had a similar experience, you, you know, he's mad at an employer who fired him and you lost a job once, or you've right. experienced some unfair, you know, administration in your own career you know, if you can find a connection there, that's fine. You know, you typically don't play that card right away. It's not the first card you play, but, but, you know, you, you, you let that person know that, you know, what your experience is not totally unique to you. Others have gone through that. And I had a difficult time, but I dealt with it. And, and I know you can too. And, and I want to help you to get there. I mean, does that sound like a cop to you that's being commanding and authoritative? No. I mean, it sounds like a human being that, wants to make a difference and, and help you in a tough situation. You brought up a really good point there that I um, don't lie. What about when you have to, you open the book, essentially kind of had to lie to somebody. And how do you do that? Because I mean, they're smart. They're very, very in tune to a situation. And as you mentioned, you shouldn't do it if you can help it. How do you determine? It's it's complicated and delicate. And we generally say, do not lie. Uh, as you point out, the first chapter of my book, you know, I talk about a case where a man was holding his former common law wife and child, and he was definitely going to kill the wife and possibly the child and then commit suicide. So we were, you know, in a really tough spot in trying to convince him to come out. And ultimately, uh, because of some pretty extreme emotional outbursts that he demonstrated, you know, we came to the conclusion that the only way to resolve the situation was to entice him out of the house to get to a helicopter, knowing the whole time that an FBI marksman would, you know, use deadly force to save the woman and child by shooting him. And that's what happened. So, 
you know, it, it is lying, but you know, there's such a, a greater good oh, sure. uh, that comes from it that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't feel guilty about it. I never have, but, but you know, it's not typically, and most negotiators will never have to do something. That's still sort of a historic event in, in FBI negotiation lore. And, uh, you know, we, we speak to that to show that sometimes the negotiator has to realize that what we're doing is unlikely to be successful. And therefore, what's our next best option to save people? And that means that the negotiator doesn't fold up his gear and say, well, I tried. That didn't work. Sure. We we now have to move into a different role where we're uh, engaging with a person in a manner that that ultimately makes for a favorable circumstance in which the tactical people can be more successful. That brings me to one that, you know, I've talked to boss, I've talked to God and people don't really want to get into details on it, but um, suicide by cop in a hostage situation, how do you, how do you stave that off? How do you react to that? Because that to me would be a really, really troublesome area. Yeah, and the, f- the first thing is to recognize it. I mean, w- when we first started seeing that phenomena, um, police didn't want to believe it. You know, somebody would say, hey, I'm going to come out and shoot at you and you're going to have to kill me. We say, oh, you're not going to do that. Well, <laughs> enough incidents began to happen where we identified this phenomena. And there are people who have decided they want to die, but for whatever reason may not feel they can kill themselves. So they set up a scenario in which the police bring about their death. Those can also be very tough on on negotiators. But so long as you recognize what's going on and when somebody says, I want to kill myself um, or you're going to have to kill me, we've we've learned to believe them, (laughs) to take that very seriously. And the first thing you do as a negotiator is to uh, warn your tactical team on the perimeter. Hey, this guy may come out suddenly without warning and engage you in a manner that will compel you to have to use deadly force against him. So beware of that. You know, um, that's not the time to be overly cautious because your life is on the line. And that happens, you know, uh, you know not infrequently. Are there triggers that will tell you if somebody is less or more threatening, like specificity of threat? Yeah, you know, when we uh, – triggers is an interesting word we try to avoid. but uh, <laughs> oh, It's off the record and on video. <laughs> for, obvious, for obvious reasons. Uh, and we all make those mistakes. We, I I've certainly have. But, um, yeah, you know, we, we – I'm sorry. I lost the question all of a sudden. Now, you were asking me uh, oh, again. Uh, what, if, um, tells. I'll say tells. Um, are there tells um, how intense something could be is like specificity of threat? What, what we do is um, we sort of run through a threat, threat assessment process. And when we open up a dialogue as a negotiation team, and, and I can only reemphasize that it is a team sport, uh, sport, no, I'm not trying to be humorous there, but um, oh. it's a team activity. When we arrive at the scene, we begin to assess the behavior and the language of the person we're dealing with. And we began to sort of run a running law. Is his speech more cooperative? Is he emotional? Are we talking about unrelated that our dialogue is working? I mean, we begin an assessment process when we open a dialogue to determine are things getting better or are they getting worse? And for example, when a, a non-scene commander who ultimately has to make a decision whether to continue to negotiate or to try tactical intervention when they say, how are things going? You can't just say, oh, good or bad. 
no, no, we really have to be very specific and articulate, you know, a whole range of items in the years that would be indicative of uh, or getting worse. And, you know, and that also forces the negotiation team to sort of do this running analysis. We in the FBI invented at Waco position papers. So we have to periodically put our thoughts on paper. You know, here's where we are now. And here's the, um, the indicators of cooperation. What is our assessment of where we're headed? And what is our recommendation? It forces us as a negotiation team to really put some thought into where we are in turn so we can give good, sound advice to a commander. You know, law enforcement has this firm belief. We don't use no more force than is absolutely necessary. You could say that the outcome is always determined by the person we're dealing with, or the perpetrator, as they would say in New York. They always determine the outcome. So they're either going to become cooperative or, or become a, a higher risk. But we have to track that, and uh, not only potentially in decision making, but in a court of law and even in a court of public opinion. You know, at the end of one of these incidents, you know, a commander that has just authorized a sniper to kill somebody has to say, it is for these reasons we took this action. He said these things. He did those things. Um, so the public comes to understand that we were not left with uh, any other option but to exercise the use of force. I think that's a high standard that we have to meet. We, we can't shoot somebody because we're tired of talking to them or it's getting late and our guys are tired and we're hungry and it's cold outside or it's raining. It needs to be far more than that. And, and you know, we've been trained to sort of uh, identify those those indicators. What would you recommend to somebody who is interested in preparing for the field? Any studies, volunteer work, anything of that sort that could help them determine? Yeah, I mean, there's no, usually there's not an academic course that teaches you to be a hostage negotiator, but, you know, taking a good amount of abnormal psychology or being a psych major would probably be of some value. Um, what I've always recommend to young negotiators is do volunteer work on a crisis hotline, a suicide hotline, and, uh, you know, give yourself an opportunity to talk to people who are in the midst of a crisis and practice the communication skills. We call them active listening skills that let the person know that you are hearing what they're saying. You understand it. And you don't just say you understand you. You paraphrase and summarize it back to him. So you're basically saying, I've just demonstrated that I hear what you're saying and I understand. And and those are powerful tools and you can get some good practice doing that. And once you get in a department, you, you know, you, you try to make it known that you were, would like an opportunity to be trained in that area. And normally they would make you be a, you know, go through some training, of course, and then uh, usually a two week course. And then you, um, you might be a, an auxiliary team member for a period of time where you're not going to be on the phone, but you're part of the team. You're maintaining the situation boards, the activity log, or taking care of the tapes and participating in the discussions and the analysis. And, and sometimes we have some brand new negotiators who come up with some really great ideas. So as a team leader, you have to be uh, very open to making sure that uh, everybody on the team you know, has an opportunity to share their assessment. Sometimes time doesn't allow you to do that as as much as you'd like, but to the extent you can. I mean, I remember at Waco even there was a brand new negotiator with no experience that came up with an absolutely wonderful idea and to the point where all us experienced negotiators are saying like, damn, why didn't I think of that? You know, but that's okay. Our goal is not to have Eric use his experience exclusively to deal with this person. We want to leverage the, the skill, the talent, the experience 
of the entire team to to achieve the best outcome we can. Great, great advice. And I'm happy to say that I'm completely new. Uh, people can find out more at GaryNessner.com. Yeah, I have a website that has um, other podcasts and, and um, there's links to, to purchase my book. You can get it on Amazon. And, um, you know, I also want to mention for those, uh, I don't know if you mentioned it, but my book was one of the two books used for the Wake Up came out on the Paramount yes. Network uh, two years ago and it's yeah. just released on Netflix a few months ago. And, um, you know, an imperfect uh, uh, movie, but a, a pretty darn good look at the, the dynamics of what happened out there and the problems and the challenges we faced. And uh, I was fortunate to be played by Michael Shannon, the twice uh, Academy Award nominated actor. And he, um, he made me a better person than I think maybe I am in real person. <laughs> but uh it, it was a pretty good experience being involved in that. Some some like it, some don't. But, uh, you know, it was an extraordinarily challenging incident. And it's it's a good program if somebody's interested. Okay, well, I highly recommend the book. I personally res- recommend getting an Audible or an audio format because then we can hear you actually talking about reading it. And I feel that gives extra depth to it because emotion does leak through. Thanks. They they'd asked me, uh, Random House asked me if I, you know, to to listen to some readers and select one that I liked. And, and then they finally said, well, would you consider doing it? And I said, sure. You know, and I found out it's a lot harder process than it took about a week in the studio. And uh, it's amazing how you can flub your own written words uh, when you have to say them. But I I was happy with the result and uh, yeah, it may mean more to some people to, I always like hearing the author's voice when I can. So Mm -hmm. uh, I was glad to do it. Well, in your book, especially because you're a negotiator, you're you're talking to people on the line. So I can visualize this person talking, reading the book, being on the other end of the line and hearing the story. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. My my friends in the FBI, they say when they read the book, they said, we just heard your voice the whole time, long before it was on mm. audio. And, um, you know, one of the things as a negotiator, uh, a big part of our job was instructing negotiations. So fortunately, the cases in the book um, were, were cases that I'd talked about in classes for many years. So I knew what the important elements of them were to incorporate in the, in, in the telling of the, of the incident. So hopefully that comes through. And I tried to provide, you know, it's a bit autobiographical, but, but I also tried to, to highlight the lessons learned in each case. You know, what what were we thinking and what were we facing and how did we overcome a problem? Well, it's, it's, it's really, really great book. And I recommend it completely. And Gary, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean, for free, it is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com, and there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hey, I'm Studio Steve. And I'm Veronica. And we we are are the the Podcast. We have a podcast all about podcasting. We cover everything related to the craft. 
how to start a podcast, how to improve a podcast, how to promote a podcast, and how to reach a bigger audience. So come check out our podcast, Pod Sound School. We're on all of the podcast players or on our website, podsoundschool.com. We are dedicated to provide our podskies with up-to-date, easy, and actionable information, sometimes outrageous and always fun. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Hi, this is Kara Mayer-Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 